0: Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Job chapter 29. Job chapter 29. It's right before Psalms, the biggest book in your Bible. So if you just go to the left there and you'll find Job chapter 29. What page is that in the pew Bible? Anyone have a pew Bible? If you don't have a Bible, it's uh, there's a Bible under your pew, and three seventy four. Okay, thank you. Three seventy four. Oh, there's my bulletin. Okay. Job twenty nine, page three seventy four. Here then the words of God. I'm going to read uh, just verses one through six of Job twenty nine, and then I'm going to read Job thirty two. 1 through 6. Okay, so 29, 1 through five, one through 6 first. Job continued his discourse saying, If only I could be as in months gone by, in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone above my head and I walked through darkness by his light. I would be as I was in the days of my youth, when God's friendship rested on my tent, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. My feet were bathed in cream, and the rock poured out streams of oil for me. Turn to Job chapter 32. Actually, Job 31, verse 35. Look at Job 31, verse 35. It says, Job is finishing. This is Job's last words here. If only I had someone to hear my case. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my opponent compose his indictment. I would surely carry it on my shoulder and wear it like a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. I would, approach him, I would approach him like a prince. Then you go to chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men quit answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, son of Barachel, the Buzite, Buzite El- Elihu, uh, from the family of Ram became angry. He was angry at Job because he had justified himself rather than God. He was also angry at Job's three friends because they had failed to refute him and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were all older than he. But when he saw that the three men could not answer Job, he became angry. So Elihu, son of Barachel, the Buzite, replied, I am young in years while you are old. Therefore, I am timid and afraid to tell you what I know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, Lord, we're going to cover a lot today. Job 29 through 37. We surely need your help every Sunday. This Sunday is no exception. Apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. And if your words don't abide in us, we can sit here. We can understand some concepts, but we can't bear any fruit. You are the vine. We are the branches. Help us to abide in you now. We need your life we need your strength, we need your grace, we need your light to enlighten our minds and our hearts to your word. Convict us of sin. Get us all out of our comfort zones and into the place of trusting you in, the, in this cursed and dangerous world. And we pray for any of our non-Christian friends who are here this morning that you would even open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A famous modern-day philosopher, Will Smith, says, Never underestimate the pain of a person, because in all honesty, everyone hurts. Some people just hide it better than others. I think he's right on this count. Never underestimate the pain of a person, because in all honesty, everyone hurts. Some people just hide it better than others. I read another quote that said, everybody hurts sometimes. Everyone goes through their seasons of pain, of hurt, and uh, some people just hide it better than others. And Job does not hide his pain. He couldn't hide the outside circumstances when he lost 10 children and lost the majority of his employees to wrath, or not to wrath, to, to robbers who stole his wealth. He lost his wealth. Robbers killed two different groups of robbers, ...killed and attacked his servants and killed them. A natural disaster killed the rest of his servants and took the rest of his wealth. And then a natural disaster killed his children. Then his health failed, and he had boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And in all that tragedy, you can't hide that he's in pain. But Job didn't hide the inside of his pain either. That's all external pain. The internal pain he expresses through the last 30 chapters or so that we've been reading. And it is true that everyone hurts sometimes... The Bible teaches this to be true Not only in the story of Job But in In all of I mean in all of scripture This is a repeated theme But for Job You know what hurt him the most Probably Or one of the The biggest pains in Job's life Was not just The death of his kids And the loss of his wealth And the death of his friends and employees And his health failing But it was the silence of God In all of it That he would pray That he would think about God, that he would try to understand what God was saying, and he couldn't hear God. He couldn't understand God. Visiting one of the church members this week in the hospital, we talked about how when you're on the hospital bed, it's really hard to concentrate. You get bursts of focus maybe for 30 seconds or so, and then your mind wanders, and it's so hard to just fix your heart and mind on God. You think, oh, I got all this free time. I could just lay down, says the healthy person, right? No, it's really difficult when you're in pain. And and so the silence of God for Job was probably the thing that just maximized and you know multiplied his burden. No Bible at the time, probably no Bible to open, not that we know of. Job was before the Bible was written, during, before Moses' time most likely. All he got was silence, and that can certainly be more painful than the other issues that he faced, at least in certain moments. So what should we do? When we face silence, the silence of God in our suffering, when you're suffering in pain, physical, spiritual, relational pain, and you pray to God and you're thinking about God and God seems silence. The silence can almost be deafening how loud silence can be. God, can you just help me know what you're doing here? I don't get it. Why am I suffering? What should we do when we face the silence of God in our suffering? here's the main idea of this text. When God is silent in your suffering, remember these three keys to suffer well. Okay. We have three keys in this text to remember so that we could suffer well when God seems silent. I'll give you the three and then we'll go through them one at a time. Number one, honestly express your thoughts. That's Job 29 through 31. Some repeated themes from earlier, honestly express your thoughts to God and to God's people. Number two, humbly discern The counsel of wise friends, or the way I wrote it here is humbly discern a wise friend's limited counsel, humbly discern and receive a wise friend's limited counsel. And number three, that's Job 32 through 37. And lastly, and we're not going to touch on this much at all, patiently wait for God's fuller answer. And we'll talk about that next week in full. But it's still a principle for this week that we think if you're going to suffer and God seems silent, you need to patiently wait for God's fuller answer answer. Okay, we'll look at these one at a time. Number one, again, honestly express your thoughts to God and his people. Number two, humbly discern a wise friend's limited counsel. And number three, patiently wait for God's fuller answer. Number one now, honestly express your thoughts. That's what Job does here in Job 29, 30, and 31. In chapter nine, Job shares his longings for the past. So share share what you're longing for. Share what you desire. Tell God what you want. Be clear about it. He already knows anyways, right? It could be something even wrong, you know, but God already knows your heart. And so expressing it is a healthy way of getting it on the table. So share your thoughts, share your longings. And in chapter 30, we see that Job states his pain. And then in chapter 31, Job examines his heart. So let's look at these. So he shares his long in chapter 29 In 29, one through six. We read it. Notice what Job misses here. Look at verse two. What does Job long for? If only I could be as in months gone by, in the days when God watched over me. Verse 4, I would be as I was in the days of my youth, when God's friendship rested on my tent. When the Almighty was still with me, and my children were around me. When my feet were bathed in cream, and the rock poured out streams of oil for me. What is Job longing for here? Bygone days, yeah, the past. There's a nostalgia of the past. And to be fair, I mean, Job's past with friends and health and wealth, that would be pretty clearly a better situation than he found himself in. And Job is saying, I wish we could go back to the 19, whatever, fill in your blank, right? The 1980s, for those of you who grew up in the 80s, or the 90s, or the 50s, or the 40s, or the 30s. I wish we could go back to those days. That's what Job was longing for. If we could only go back to those days... Do you remember when you were a kid and you had no worries? You know, you say that like no responsibilities and just carefree. If you had, not everyone had a pleasant childhood, but if you did, perhaps you wish you could go back to those. That's what Job was saying. I, I wish I could go back. And before you think Job is idolatrous of the past, what was the main thing he loved about the past? Who was with him? Who was near him? Well, his kids were there, but twice or three times. God, right? That God was there and he was near God. So right now he feels near God or far from God. Far from God, right? And say If I could just go back to the past, not that I love my family more than God necessarily, but God was near me. And now God is far from me. So he longs for the past. He, lo- he misses the good old days with God, when he used to walk with God and enjoy God. In verses 7 through 17, we see that Job was respected because he was a just man. He used to go out, it says in verse 7, to the city gate. He took his seat in the town square. Young men saw him and withdrew. While older men stood at their feet, people would listen to his words. Whenever Job would speak, everyone would say, be quiet, shh, listen, Job is about to speak. They would write down what he says, and Job says that his words would settle on them like dew. They would just be silent and just let, let his words sink in, as we like to say today. Not talk back, not answer, ask questions, just when Job speaks, they would just let his words sink in. Not object, not argue in their minds, just think and mull over what he was saying. That's how Job... Used to be. In verse 14, he clothed himself in righteousness, he says, and it enveloped him. His, his just decisions were like a, a robe and a turban. He was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. He helped those who were disabled. He helped the handicapped. In verse 16, I was a father to the needy, and I examined the case of the stranger. So, so Job here would he'd care about orphans. Do you remember what James said in James 1, 29? True religion is caring for orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unstained from the world. He cared about orphans. He cared about the fatherless. He cared about those who were needy, strangers. Look at verse 17. I shattered the fangs of the unjust and snatched the prey from his teeth. So even here, Job, Job would fight injustice. Not just unjust people, but even unjust systems. Unjust systems where, where people are being oppressed under particular systems in his society. Job would speak out. He was an elder at the city gate. He would help run policy decisions even for the city. And he would speak up and fight for the justice of those who are oppressed under people, powerful people, or powerful systems when, when the power corrupts those who are in power. So because Job did all these good things... What did he think? How did he think his, his life was going to end? If I do good and enjoy life and enjoy wealth, and I don't use my wealth to prey on people, but I use my wealth to serve people, I use my power to bless people. I figured when I died, I would die a, a nice, healthy old man, right? That's verse 18. So I thought I will die in my own nest and multiply my days as the sand. My roots will have access to water. And the dew will rest on my branches all night. My strength will be refreshed within me. And my bow will be renewed by my hand. I thought I was going to have a happy ending. But everything came crashing down. Friends and employees dead. Wealth gone. Children dead. Health disastrous. This is not how I foresaw my life ending. And I wish I could go back when I was close to God. This is not how it was supposed to end. Job thought. He goes on to to share some of his blessings in the past in the rest of the chapter that men used to respect him. And then so so we want what what God is teaching us from Job is share your longings, share your desires. Some of them could be good. Some of them could be bad, a little distorted, a little idolatry here. I'm not saying idolatry is good, but if it's already in your heart, just share where you're at. Be honest. But not only should you share your longings, you should also state your pain. Look at chapter 30. Job states his pain in verses 1 through 14. You know, he says, the most respected people in society would listen to me. But you know you know now who makes fun of me? The people that society ignores. What society calls the worthless people, the, the, um, the criminals, the outcasts, those who are disrespected in the world, even those guys don't listen to me. Even those guys make fun of me and mock me. Like, that's how bad my life has gotten. When they see my suffering, they see how I fell from this place of prosperity to this place of adversity criminals and the, the the lowest of society will look at me and say, that guy is cursed, man. Like, stay away from him. Don't listen to anything that guy has to say. If he gives you advice, do the exact opposite all the time and you'll be all right because you don't want to end up where he went, where he ended up. That's how they thought in verses 1 through 14. Worthless men would mock him. In verses 15 through 17 of chapter 30, he says in verse 15, terrors are turned loose against me. They chase my dignity away like the wind and my prosperity has passed like a cloud. So, in night chapter verse 17 night pierces my bones but my gnawing pains never rest he couldn't get sleep physical pain all the time the night was a terror to him the day was a terror to him the society was a terror to him he couldn't get comfortable physically or even socially and to make it worse in job's mind look at verse 18 now verse 18 and 24 this is very important if there's some things you highlight in job this is very important to the argument okay look at verse 18. My clothing is distorted with great force. He, choked, he chokes me by the neck of my garment. Who? Who's the He there? He chokes me by the neck. Look at verse 19. He throws me into the mud, and I become like dust and ashes. And if you're reading the previous verses, you don't know who the He is. But then go on to verse 20. I cry out to you for help, but you what? You don't answer me. Who's he talking about? God. Verse 20, when I stand up, I need help. I stand up. What does God do in verse 20? He merely what? He just stares at him. Imagine that. That's like First John chapter 3 where, or, and even James where he says, if you see your brother in need and you say in James chapter 2, hey, you see a hungry person there at your door. They're cold. They're hungry. You have food. You got an extra blanket that you don't need. right? You got like four of them in the cabin. You can just easily give one away. You're saying, oh, I hope you're warm. I'll pray for you. Be warm. And then you close the door. James is saying, what good is that? They're still cold. Give them the blanket. That's what God, that's what Job is saying that God is doing. I'm crying out to you, God, and God, you just just stare at me. Why are you staring? Do something. Move, God. Verse 21, it gets worse what Job's thinking here. Talking to God again, you have turned against me with what? Cruelty. Does anyone have a different translation there? God, you have turned against me with what? With a strong hand. He's, He's actually impugning God's motives here a little bit, right? God, you're being cruel to me. You've turned against me with cruelty. You harass me with your strong hand. You lift me up on the wind and make me ride it. You scatter me in the storm. Yes, I know that you will lead me to death. The place appointed for all who live. Yet, no one would stretch out his hand against the ruined man when he cries out to him for help because of his distress. That's quite a picture there. Verse 24. When you see someone who's hungry and distressed, what what would you do? He's saying, Job would say, no one would stretch out his hand and strike that person. Imagine that. There's someone on the side of the road begging for food, and he's cold. And not only do you not give him anything, you get out of your car to hit him, to stretch out your hand against him. That's what Job is saying it feels like. I'm asking for help. You're staring at me. Not only that, no one would even stretch out their hand against him. And that's what you're doing to me, God. That's a pretty bold statement, right? Of what Job, as he states his pain, this is my pain, that God is mean and God is being cruel to me. He's being a bully. From chapter, or if you go to verses 25 to 31, Job says that my life is hard and it's just not fair. It's not right. So Job states his pain. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to state your pain as well. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you as well. Be honest with God. State your pain. Tell God why it hurts. Tell God what you think hurts. And then lastly, chapter 31, at least of this first part of honestly expressing your thoughts, examine your own heart. Is there sin in your life? Is there sin in your heart? Examine that and, and confess that to God. Now here's Job's point. Job doesn't think he has any sin in his heart. Not that he's sinless, but that there's no sin that caused this Tragedy. Why are my kids dead? Why are my friends dead? Why are my workers dead? Why am I robbed? Why is my health failed? Why is my wife telling me to curse God? What did I do, God, to deserve this? Now, the answer is, what did Job do to deserve this? Answer? Nothing. Nothing. That's the biblical answer from Job 1 and 2. Now, Job doesn't know that deal that God had with Satan, so he's asking why. And he's checking his heart, is there something I did that would cause this? And so look at 31, verse 1, as he searches his heart. I love this. He talks about his purity of heart, his sexual purity. Look at verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a what? Young woman. Young woman. I love Alistair Begg. He passes on the wisdom of another pastor. He asks one of the older pastors, how could I pray for you? Or um, I actually, I might be mis- mixing this up with another story now as I'm thinking about it. Um, but the, the, the prayer request goes along the line of, God, save me from the sins of old men. Speaking of of the of, of as we age, you know, the, the temptation to lust after younger women is strong, and it's real, especially in our pornographic culture of today. And so Job is saying, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I, how could I even look at a another woman? How could I look at a young woman? For, and then verse 2, for what portion would I have from God above, and what inheritance from the Almighty on high? Well, what would I gain from God if I did that? Doesn't disaster come to the unjust and misfortune to evildoers? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? God knows what I'm doing. I can't hide it from God. Even if no one in the room knows what I'm doing, God would know. And I wouldn't gain anything by it. So I made a covenant promise that I would not do that. You see his purity even in verse... Look, go back to, or go to go down to verse 9. If my heart has been seduced by my neighbor's wife or I lurked at his door... Here, if So if I've done that and I haven't committed adultery... So what, so um, verse 10, if I have though, let my own wife grind grain for another man. Let her, let her work for another man and let other men sleep with her for that would be a disgrace. It would be a crime deserving punishment for it is a fire that consumes down to Abaddon. That's the place of the dead. It would destroy my entire harvest. If I've committed adultery, let my wife commit, let, let my, let my harvest go away. Let me be punished. But what's Job's point? Has he committed adultery? No. And so he says, I've kept a pure heart. I've kept an eternal perspective. I know God knows everything. I know God is just. In verses 5 through 8, I've kept my integrity. I've never lied. I've never cheated anyone. I've been honest um, in, in all my business dealings. In verses 13 through 15, he says, I've been a fair employer to my employees. I never cheated them wages. I was a generous boss. I loved my employees, and I paid them well, and I care for them well. Verses 13 through 15. Verses 16 through 23, again, I cared for the poor, I cared for widows, I cared for orphans. Look at verses 24 and 25. If I place my confidence in gold or called fine gold my trust, if I have rejoiced because my wealth is great or because of my own hand has acquired so much. So again, he's saying, if I've done this, I'm guilty, but I haven't. I haven't trusted in my gold, my riches. So even though Job was rich, he wasn't materialistic. In verses 26 through 28, he says, I never worshiped the sun or the moon. I never gave like a secret prayer to the moon when I saw a beautiful full moon, when I saw a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset, how these pagans here just start praying and worshiping the sun. I never did that. I never said a secret prayer to the sun. In verses 29 through 30, he anticipates Jesus's command in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at 29. Have I rejoiced over my enemy's distress or become excited when trouble comes his way? I have not swallowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life with a curse. In other words, Job loved his enemies. Remember Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Job did that. I loved my enemies. I never wanted bad for them. I never prayed anything bad for them. I wanted good for them. I loved my enemies. Verses 31 through 32, I've been hospitable with my household. Haven't the members of my household said, who is there who has not had enough to eat at Job's table? No stranger had to spend the night on the street for I opened my door to the traveler. People needed to sleep over. You could sleep over. People wanted to eat. Come eat at my dinner table. He was a man of hospitality. Verses 33 to 34, last part of his, his statement on his integrity. Have I covered my transgressions as others do by hiding my guilt in my heart because I greatly feared the crowds and the contempt of the clans that terrified me? So I grew silent and would not go outside. Have I ever hid my sins? Yes or no? Has Job hid sins? As best he can tell. No, I've been honest. I've confessed my sins to God. I've confessed my sins to people. As best I can tell in my heart, I've been a man of integrity. I don't have any secret sins. Like even as you're accusing me of sin, I don't know what else to confess. I have been a man who has obeyed God and I have been righteous, spiritually mature, blameless, as it says. So what's Job's final request? In verse 35, if only God would give me a listen. But God is ignoring me. He's staring at me. He's slapping me around. And he's not talking. He's just slapping me. If only God would listen to me. And if God would listen to me and then, and then point out sin in my life, I would accept it. I, I, would, I would embrace it. If, if there's some sin that I don't know about, God, just give me a hearing. Let's talk about this. And if I'm wrong and you deserve to punish me, I deserve punishment, then hey, put it on me. I'm not going to complain about it. I will take it. But I don't get it. When I look at my life, I look at my wife, I look at my kids, I look at my neighbors, I look at my work, I look at my place in society, I look at what I've done. Yeah, I'm not perfect, I'm not sinless, but I don't get why this is happening to me. And if you could just help me understand that, I'd receive it. That's Job's final plea. And the friends always responded, but this time, the friends are silent. Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, they got nothing left. Job has won the argument with them. Job has said to them over and over, you're a little, there must be something wrong that just doesn't make sense. There has to be another reason, and I'm, I'm, I can't, I can't figure out why. So to summarize, here's what Job is saying. If only I can go back to the past, now I'm unfairly treated because I'm righteous, and only if God cared enough to hear me and examine me. That's what he's saying. So when you share your and express your thoughts to God, when you're suffering, when God seems silent, honestly express your thoughts, share your longings, state your pain. And examine your heart. And if you've sinned, ask God for forgiveness. If you're like Job and you haven't sinned, or you can't figure out the sin, you still say, "God, I could be wrong, but I don't know. So I'm just going to go to you with with an examined heart." We do well as Christians to examine our hearts. Christians should examine their hearts and confess sin daily, and even multiple times a day. So Christian or non-Christian, here's the application to you: go to God directly and be honest with God. God knows what you're thinking, anyways. That doesn't mean your thoughts or words are going to be sinless, but share your thoughts honestly with God and with others who know God. They might be able to help you out, as we're going to see in this next section. If, for our church family, what does this mean for our church? It means we need to give space to each other to honestly express our pain. That doesn't mean there's no place for a correction, for teaching. It just means that when brothers or sisters are expressing their thoughts and their pain, to give them space to think, to give them space to talk, and to not jump on every mis- statement, or misstep theologically. We want to know the Bible. We want to uphold the Bible. We hate sin. God hates sin. But we need to give space. If if it's already there, just let them say it. Let them them put it out on the table. And don't jump on them for it. Um, We want to be a a church that seeks God in holiness and takes sin seriously. But we don't want to be insensitive. We don't want to be um, brutes who just kind of jump on people because we have it right and they have it wrong. Okay, We do want to correct each other. But we don't want people to bottle it up. That's what's going to happen. If we don't give space for people to express things and then gently correct when it's the right time, then people will bottle up. And they won't share their pain. And then you'll have a lot of people in a church who are hurting and feeling unable to share it with others. And that's not what the church of God is supposed to be. The church of God is supposed to be a place where you have a church family where you can share and bear each other's burdens. Okay, so that's the first thing, is share your thoughts to God. And the second thing, remember the third thing is not really, it's just a statement. But secondly, not only should you share your thoughts with God, but humbly discern your wise friend's limited counsel. So here's Elihu, chapter 32 through 37. Why does God have to include Elihu? I mean, isn't there enough talking? I love how this sermon series feels long. And the sermons feel long. It's supposed to feel that way. Because that's how the book feels. Part of the job of a preacher is to express not only what what it's saying, but to even express or try to express the feeling that it's creating. It feels long. It feels dragged out. It feels like a cycle over and over because it is. And so now Job gave his final stand. God, just answer me. So who do you expect to come in? God with his final answer. But I don't know who wrote Job, but I want to ask, why did you put these other chapters in here? Why is six more chapters before we finally get to Job? I mean, haven't, I mean, before we finally get to God, Job. I don't know why I said God, Job. It's not even Job. Why, why six chapters before we finally get to God? Come on, already, like Just end this thing. Nope. The author says, six more chapters. A, a hidden bonus friend that you didn't know was sitting there. Elihu. Surprise! The curtain opens, you know. Here comes Elihu. More, six more chapters of conversation. Just like, when is this thing gonna end? And so here's Elihu. And the question is why does the author put him here? Why does God put him here? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, God comes on his time, not on your cue. Just because Job says, Give me that final answer, here's my final stand. God doesn't jump through your hoop. He doesn't jump through my hoop. He comes when he comes. So if God wants five more people to talk, five more people will talk. God doesn't go on our cue. Number two, Elihu prepares for some of God's arguments later. And we'll talk about it as we look at Elihu's argument. That It's starting to preview God's answer. Third, Elihu shows that God has revealed some general things that are helpful to comprehend in our trials. The three friends have been really worthless. The three other friends. I mean, they have done, I was arguing with one of my pastor friends about Job this week. And he was like, you know, they were 50% right. And Eli, who was 99% right, but he was still wrong. Uh, and I said, yeah, but those guys who were 50% right were 100% wrong. They were 50% right with what they said. But when they say God punishes evil, that was right. Therefore, you must be evil, Job. And that's what happened. That was 100% wrong and unhelpful. That's why they have to repent at the end. Elihu doesn't have to repent at the end. So, so these three friends have been zero help to Job once they open their mouths. And now Elihu comes and he's showing us that even though God is going to give the final answer, humans can still give good answers. I think some people make the mistake when they read Job to say, we can't listen to anyone, we, we can't know anything, we just got to wait till we get to heaven. No, God gives us some things now. The book of Job is something for us now, right? We're not in heaven yet, yet we get a few answers. And Elihu shows us that humans can have some good answers. That's why the second point is, humbly discern a wise friend's counsel. Because they do have some good things to help you with, and you need to discern it. Um, The last reason why I think these six chapters of delay before God comes is here is because we need to grow in discerning what others say. We need to practice discerning good and bad in a person's comments, and Elihu gives us that because he has a few bad things, a lot of good things, and we get to practice it right here. Okay, so let's do that here. So um, I read 32, 1 through 5. I want you to notice something in chapter 32. There's a word that's repeated over and over again. Look at verse 1. What did he become? Or verse 2. Elihu became what? Angry. And it says he was angry at who? Job. And then verse 3, he was also angry with who? Job's three friends. And then in verse 4, it says that he waited to speak. In verse 5, when he saw that three men couldn't answer him, he became what? Angry, right? He's mad. And so now, um, Elihu is lashing out in anger here. He's, he's, he's pretty angry. Why is he angry? Well, well, actually, let's ask this question. I want you to, this is debated, so let's, let's, let's take a vote here. Was Elihu righteously angry or sinfully angry? Okay, now you can say, well, there's a mixture. Well, just lean one way or the other. Do you lean sinfully angry or lean that he was righteously angry? How many of you say um, Elihu was generally sinfully angry? Raise your hand. Okay. How many say that Elihu was righteously angry? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, I think, so um, here's what C.J. Mahaney says. I love C.J. Mahaney. He's a great teacher and a godly brother. But he says here, "We, we should never be confident that we are purely righteously angry. And so it's safer to assume that Elihu was sinfully angry. That's what, that's what CJ says okay but PJ says <laughs> he was <laughs> he was angry for two reasons actually the text gives it so Ephesians 4: 26 says 26 says be angry and do not sin don't let the sun go down on your anger or your wrath right so if, if you if you're angry all the way tonight and you don't reconcile that's that's sinning for sure and then you give the devil a what opportunity it says in ephesians 4 but you could sin righteously in the moment just don't let the sun go down and give the opportunity to devil but you could you can be righteously angry in the moment if you're angry at sin for god's glory not for your own preferences now why was elihu angry look at verse 2 he was angry at job because what job had what justified himself rather than who god Job is saying, I'm righteous and God, I'm not saying God is unrighteous, but he seems very unrighteous. I'm not saying he is, because I won't go there, but I'll like almost go to the right to the edge and say he's mean. I won't say he's unfair, but he's being really mean right now. And that makes Elihu mad. Stop saying God is not righteous. Stop talking about your righteousness and not focusing on God's righteousness. The second reason he's angry is in verse three. He's angry with Job's three friends. Why? Because they what? They, they couldn't answer him because he, he's seeing Job sinning here by, getting, by, by not defending God but defending himself and saying God is mean. He's seeing that happen and the three friends don't have a good answer. You know when you're in a debate or you see two people arguing and you feel like you have better arguments than them? And you just want to jump in the middle like, no, you're not saying it right. Like I agree with you sort of like get this guy, but you're not saying it right. Um, I don't know how that would be for the presidential debates this, this cycle, but in previous cycles, you might have felt a little bit more convinced of a side and, and felt like, say it this way instead. And so Elihu has been waiting a long time to get his – stop Job from, from what he's doing here with, with that. And so for those reasons, for those two reasons, the, also the fact that God doesn't rebuke Elihu at the end, I think Elihu is righteously angry here. Generally, I think he has some bad things here and I'll, I'll point them out in a second. But I think he was righteously angry because God is when you get to Job 38 next week. Guess who's angry with Job? God is. And guess what God's anger is? It's the same thing that Elihu's angry about. So I think it's a righteous anger, but uh, we could disagree about that. What was Elihu saying? Chapter 32. I'm going to summarize a lot here and just maybe point out one or, uh, or just a few things on each chapter. Chapter 32, Eli who's basically saying this, I got wisdom to speak to. I got something to say. I'm younger than you guys, so I waited. But now it's my turn, and I have wisdom too. And look at what he says in 32.8. This is not to commend young people or to belittle old people, but, but we still need to think through what it says here. Job 32.8 says this, or two seven. I thought that age should speak and maturity should teach wisdom. But, so older people should be wiser, but it is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty that give him what? Understanding. So where does wisdom come from? From who? From God. Not from age, but from God. Verse 9, it is not only the old who are wise or the elderly who understand how to judge. Therefore, I say, listen to me now. So Elihu is saying, you guys are older, so I defer to you. But younger people can have wisdom too because wisdom doesn't come necessarily with age. It comes from God. And that's biblical. 2 Timothy 2 7, Paul says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. James 1 2 to 5 says, James 1 2 consider it a great joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James 1 5 says, If anyone lacks wisdom when he's in trial, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously. So, who gives wisdom when you're in trial? God does. Listen to Psalm 119, verses 97 to 100. I love this part of the Psalms, how I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers who taught me. I have more insight than all my teachers. Why? Because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders because I obey your precepts. You don't get wisdom by knowing the Bible. You get wisdom by obeying the Bible. That's where wisdom comes from. And that comes from God. It's a dangerous thing to grow in knowledge of the Bible because knowledge puffs up. But love, which is the greatest commandment, what does that do? It builds up, right? Wisdom does not come from knowing Scripture. Wisdom comes from knowing, believing, and then obeying Scripture every day, every trial. Every situation, every word, every thought, repenting regularly and growing in Christ. That's where wisdom comes from. The older we become and the less we apply, the more deluded we could become in what wisdom really is. And so Elihu says, I have wisdom too, and it's come from God. And then in verse 14, he says, My argument's different than, than the other three. And verse 18 and 19, I I have to speak. I can't keep it in. And guess what, guys? In verses 21 and 22, I don't have a side to pick. I'm not on Job's side. I'm not on the three friends' side. I'm on neither side. I just want to say what God has to say. That's a good friend. You have a good friend when they won't just take your side for every reason. They'll actually confront you when you need to be confronted. So then you go to chapter 33, and then he tells Job, get ready. And then I like what he says in verse 6. Look at 33, 6. I am just like you before God, Job. I was also pinched off from a piece of clay. Fear of me should not terrify you. The pressure I exert against you will be light. So then verse 5, he's saying, refute me if you can. In other words, Eli- Elihu's saying, I have a lot to say, but I can be wrong. I don't think I'm wrong, but I could be wrong. So if I have something wrong, then what does he want Job to do? Verse 5, refute me. Correct me. I'm just a man. I'm not God. I'm just like you, human. So correct me if I'm wrong, but let me say what I think. Let me say what I think God has said. And so here's what Elihu does, does, which the other friends don't do. He names Job's sin. Look at 33.8. He's going to name the sin. three eight. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, Job, and I have heard these very words. You said, Job, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and I have no guilt. Verse 10. But you say, Job, that God finds reasons to oppose you. He regards you as his enemy. That God puts you in your feet in the stocks and he stands watch over all your paths. You're saying that that you're innocent yet God treats you like an enemy. That's what you're saying. And Job, you're wrong for saying that. You know where Job said that? Let me read you some of Job's words. In chapter 13, Job says, Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy, God? In chapter 16, Job said, His anger tears at me and he harasses me. He gnashes his teeth at me. My enemy pierces me with his eyes. He's calling God his enemy. In Job 19, Job said uh, it says or Job says his anger burns against me and he regards me as one of his enemies. In Job 30, we already read it, Job said that God turns against him in cruelty. And then we read in jo- also in Job 31 where where Job says he just stares at me and he 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 slaps me around. And Elihu's saying, "Job, that's wrong. Stop saying that God is your enemy." And he's right for that reason. I think Elihu's right on that account. So Job is wrong, and then Elihu tells you why Job is wrong. Because God is greater than man, and you're saying that God doesn't speak. Look at Job 33 verse 13. 33:13. Why do you take why do you take God to court for not answering anything a person asks? God speaks time and again, but a person may not notice it in a dream, a vision in the night, when deep sleep falls upon people as they slumber on their beds. He uncovers their ears. So his point is, you think God is silent, but is God silent all the time? No. Is God speaking? Yes. Maybe not in the way you want, not with the clarity and answering the questions you're asking, but God is speaking. That's what Elihu's saying. Stop saying that God's silent, that God doesn't love you, that you're his enemy. He loves you, and he's not silent. He still speaks. And for that reason, Elihu is, is right, I think, and Job, he's right to tell Job that Job is wrong here. When you get to chapter 34, Eli who says, Eli who names another sin. Look at 34 verses 5 and 6. 34, 5 and 6. Eli who points out another sin of Job. For Job declared, I am righteous, yet God has deprived me of what? Of justice. What I lie about my case, my wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. So what is Job saying? I'm innocent and God is punishing me. God is being unfair, unjust. At least, I'm not saying God's character is unjust. You know how we like to not say it all the way i'm not saying god is unjust i'm just saying the situation the way he's dealing with me right now this is an unjust situation and he's in charge i'm not saying he's unjust but he's in charge of this unjust situation and he could change it but he doesn't want to but i'm not gonna say anything about him but this is unjust and so elihu's saying why are you defending yourself and saying you're righteous but you're saying that god is treating you unfairly so elihu calls um Elihu calls Job wicked. Look at verse. A lot of people get mad at Elihu for for this. I want to defend Elihu here. Thirty-four, verse seven. Look, listen to Elihu's words here. What is what man is like? Job, he drinks duration like water. He he keeps company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. I read that. I'm like, uh-oh. Elihu sounding like who? The other three friends, right? Job is wicked. He hangs out with the wicked. That's his crew. Elijah sounding just like, them. but then Elihu says why he's saying this, not because he hangs out with them. He says he's like them. Why? Or actually, no verse eight, he is saying he, he walks with them, but look at verse eight. Why? For he has said, here's why I think he's wicked. A man gains nothing when he becomes God's friend. Again, he's pointing out a sin. What's the sin there? If I be God, if I live a life of godliness, what does it profit in the end? What's Job saying? The profit in the end is nothing. If I become God's friend and I walk with God, you know what happens at the end of life? Does it matter or not? Doesn't matter. It profits you nothing. Is that true or false? False. But Job is acting like it's true, and Elihu saying, "You're just like the w- that's a wicked statement. That's what wicked people say. What's the point, anyways? We're all going to die. Might as well. He who dies with the most toys wins. They say, right? Whether however you get it, just whether it's righteous or unrighteous, we're all going to die anyways. So just get the most toys. That's what the wicked say. And, and Job is talking like that. And so Elihu calls him out on that for saying it's profitless. And he says, God can't do any wrong. He's too great. And then here's where Elihu is at his worst. This is where I think Elihu is at his worst. Look at thirty-four, 36, 36 and 37 of chapter 34, verses 36 and 37. If only Job were tested to the limit because his answers are like those of wicked men. What does Job do in 37? For he adds rebellion to his what? To his sin. Ah, that's where Elihu gets it wrong. I'm like, no, Elihu, don't say that. But he did. So he's saying um, that Job sinned, and that's why he's suffering. At least he's alluding to that. But now that he's suffering, he's rebelling with his words. So I want you to notice something. Just look up here for a second. I want you to notice what Elihu's doing. The three friends are focusing on why is Job suffering? Their answer, because Job what? Sinned. Elihu's not focusing on why Job is suffering. Elihu's focusing on what? As Job is suffering, he's saying things that are sinful and rebellious. And that's where Elihu's focusing his discussion. He's not trying to answer the question, though I think here he kind of just slides a little bit into the friend's mistake. And saying now this rebellion's added to the previous sin. But Elihu's focus is generally on how you're suffering now, not why you were suffering to begin with. Does that make sense? And so Elihu's different. In that regard. So Elihu calls out the sin of saying God is unfair and that godliness is profitless. He says, God's great. You, he, God doesn't make mistakes, Job. Chapter 35. Um, he basically says, you think you're righteous and there's no benefit. But God is so big, Job. And he doesn't answer you because you're proud. Again, I think here's another mistake of Elihu. thirty-five twelve. They cry out and the, the wicked cry or the people cry out to God, but he doesn't answer because... Of the pride of evil men. So God's not answering you, Job, because you're you're being proud and you're being arrogant. I don't think that's why God is not answering Job. Why is God not answering Job? Because he has a deal with who? The with the devil, right? And this is part of Job's test. It's not because he's being arrogant. So I think Elihu misspeaks there. Chapter 36. Chapter 36. Let me summarize it here. Oh, man, this is so important. Chapter 36 you need to read 36 later for homework, but let me give you the cliff note part of this. Here's what, here's what Elihu says, and this is important. Job, when people suffer, it's not always because they did bad things. Sometimes people suffer because God's testing them. He doesn't know about Satan and, and God deal, but he says in 36, it's possible that God's testing you because God tests the righteous. He even, he even calls them righteous. Look at verse 7. He says, he doesn't remove his gaze from the righteous. And then verse 8, if the righteous are bound with chains and trapped by the cords of affliction, God tells them what they've done wrong and how arrogantly they've transgressed. And he opens their ear to correction. In other words, even though righteous people suffer, they're not perfectly righteous, right? They sin. But even the innocent in this world suffer. And even when they're suffering, God still reveals other sins and they get to confess those. And that's where you're at, Job. Maybe you didn't sin to begin with. You're righteous. But now that you're in the suffering, you're sinning, and God is bringing out more sin that you could repent of. Isn't that true? Isn't that, what Job, isn't that what's happening to Job? And so he's actually right on here. He's not, he doesn't know the, the deal, Satan and God, but he's right on here. And so he penetrates through without knowing. And he's saying, God is so great, you just can't act like you understand him, Job. Chapter 37, Elihu sounds like God. Where were you when God created things? Where were you? Are you in charge of the lightning? Are you in charge of any of these things? God is so great. We just can't question him, Job. God is too high. He's too righteous in chapter 37 verse 22 and 23. We just look at the look at the, the end of Elihu's. Let's go to the end of Elihu's words here. 37:22. 37, 37:22. 22. 37, 22. Yet out of the north God comes shrouded in a golden glow. Awesome majesty surrounds him. The Almighty, we can't reach him. He's just too high. He's exalted in power. He will not oppress justice and abundant righteousness. God will be fair, Job. God is not being unfair. God is righteous. Do I understand what he's doing? No. He's just so high. But God is righteous, is what Elihu's saying. And then 24, so what's Elihu's conclusion? Therefore, men, what should we do? Fear him. He does not look favorably on any who are wise in heart. Let's humble ourselves before God. Okay, so how do we apply this as we... Close. So, so how do we discern a wise friend's counsel? We need to discern. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 says, Test all things and hold on to what is good. So you need to test Elihu's words. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 1 John 4, 1 says that there are false spirits and false teachers in the world. And then 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching for approving, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that you may be competent and equipped for every good work. So you have to test everything your friends say. You have to test everything a pastor says from the pulpit. You have to test everything that's going to be said in a business meeting. We're going to have an open forum next week, business meeting the next week. You have to test everything you see on TV, everything a politician says, everything your parents say, everything your children say, everything your neighbors say. Everything that anyone says has to be tested by God's word. And you cling to what is good, and you reject what is evil that's the point you discern wise counsel from your friends we are Christians so we submit to the word of Christ that means as a church family that means as individuals we need to submit to God's word now if we test Elihu where was he wrong and where was he right here's where he's wrong in 36 3 and 4 he says in 34 he says my arguments are without flaw and one who has perfect knowledge is with you. So Elihu is saying, I have perfect knowledge. So Elihu does go a little bit overboard with his arrogance. That's wrong. That's not, that's not to be acceptable. But also, in 34, 36, and 37, like I read, he says that Job had previous sin and rebellions being added to it. I think that was wrong by Elihu. And then when Elihu said, God is silent because you're proud. That's not true. God is silent because of the test, not because of pride. So those are three things, the three major flaws of Elihu. Some might want to add sinful anger. If you're on that team, that's fine. You could add it to it. But three or four things that Elihu got wrong. But he got a lot right, didn't he? He said that the righteous, I think he had righteous reasons for anger. James says, be slow to anger and slow to speak. Quick to what? Hear. Was Elihu quick to hear or quick to speak? He was quick to hear, right? Didn't he not speak for 30 chapters? just quietly waiting for his turn. I think that's commendable. Eli who said, Job, correct me if I'm wrong. He's open to correction. That's a good thing. Eli who named specific sins. It's never good to rebuke someone if you can't name their sin. Don't just say someone's wrong or, hey, you're wrong. If you're going to say someone's wrong, you've got to name a specific sin. Even better, have a Bible verse as to why they're sinning. It's not helpful to just say someone's sinning. He named specific things Job said as sinful. Trial And he also teaches us that trials have a bigger purpose. You don't just suffer because of previous punishment. God has purposes for you. He's testing you. God and, and then he focuses on God's greatness. Don't focus on your righteousness. Focus on God's righteousness. Don't focus on the cause of the pain. Let's focus on how you're suffering in the pain. For all of those reasons, I think Elihu is a good friend. And he, he had wise counsel. So when you have friends and when we counsel each other, let's not be insensitive Let's speak as best we can And then let's discern from each other Let's be open to correction And let's speak to one another with wisdom and love So if you're suffering and God is silent Number one, share your thoughts with God honestly Number two, listen to wise counsel from friends With discernment And number three, patiently wait for who? Who has the fullest answer? God does, right? Patiently wait for God's fuller answer And we're going to get to that next week When God gives his answer But as we wait for that For god's answer even then god's not going to give a full answer to job in this life And we'll talk about that next week, but sometimes we have to wait till heaven For our fullest answer So to conclude when god is silent remember these three keys Express yourself to god honestly discern the counsel of others and remember to wait patiently for god you will suffer brothers and sisters Your church members your fellow church members will suffer and it's important to think and pray So that we suffer well and help each other suffer well Eli, who got a lot of things right. There's one more thing I'm going to point out that he got wrong. Not morally wrong, but he still got wrong. He said the righteous suffer for God's greater purposes, even though there's some sin. So um, let me close with this. So I'm closing my Bible. Here's, here's the last thing I want to say about what Eli who got wrong. The righteous suffer, not for sinful reasons. And then when they're suffering, sin comes out. And guess what God does? He transforms them and he, he, he cleanses them from those sins. That's what happens to Job, right? Job wasn't suffering for sin, but Job does sin in the process, and God's going to cleanse him from those, and Job's going to repent. And Elihu was right about that. But here's where Elihu didn't go far enough. He didn't have enough wisdom to say this. There's actually someone who suffers innocently, and even when they're in suffering, they still suffer without sin. And there's never a purpose of them dealing with their sin, that, God, that the trial is there. And who are we talking about with that? Jesus. He didn't suffer because of sin, and when he's on the cross... There's no sin that comes out eventually to correct. He truly, in a sense, suffers unjustly, in a sense, because he never sinned. And he never would sin in suffering. And this is the worst suffering, because God's wrath is going to be poured out on him. He's going to face the judgment of God for sins he never committed. That's truly the most unjust type of suffering. And yet it wasn't unjust. Why? Because Jesus was united to those who trust in him And our sins were on his body on the tree And Jesus suffers for our sins And we suffer with him as we're united to him Just like a husband, a billionaire husband Who marries, our, well it doesn't have to be husband It could be the other way around, billionaire wife A billionaire fiancé with another fiancé Who's in $50 million of debt They get married and what happens? The debt is erased, Right? The debt is absorbed by the billions of dollars that the billionaire fiance owns. It goes to the fifty million dollar indebted spouse, and now they're out of debt together. And that the, the richer the richer fiance is out fifty million dollars, but he's a billionaire, so it doesn't or he or she's a billionaire, so it doesn't matter. That's how it is with Jesus. He's on the cross. Does he have any debt? Does he have any sin? No. But as we get united to him by faith, he pays our debt as an innocent sufferer because we are not innocent. We are guilty of our sin, and Christ took it all on the cross. Praise God. Praise God for Jesus who died for our sins and rose from the dead. If you're not a Christian, I close with this. God is inviting you to unite yourself to Jesus by faith in Christ and repentance from sin. God says, I'll give you forgiveness. I'll give you life. I'll give you the Holy Spirit to begin to transform you in your life. But you must turn from your sins, turn from your religion, and trust in my son, the innocent sufferer. And if you do that today, calling out to God to save you by trusting Christ, he'll save you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us Job and Elihu. Job didn't know even then not only your purposes for his life in that story, but that 4,000 years or so later, across the world in Los Angeles County, the story of Job would help a group of Christians and non-Christians this morning. You have bigger purposes for our suffering than we understand. And so, Father, we pray that we would suffer well, that we would share our experiences of pain, that we would share our longings, that we would state our pain clearly and honestly. Even if we might sin in saying it, if it's really there in the heart, we just might as well get it on the table. So help us to express our pains honestly to one another. Help us to give each other space to pray and process. And then help us to discern wise counsel, limited counsel, but wise from each other. And then, Father, most importantly, help us to patiently wait for the fullest and fuller answer that comes from you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus, the innocent sufferer who died in our place for our sins. May we treasure him this morning, even in our suffering. and in our ministry to those who suffer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.